the opportunity we have even this evening by itself, and they don't have it. So, Father, you've uniquely privileged us. So, so give us a heart to lay hold of the privilege and to use it for best, uh, best effect. In that, we depend upon your Holy Spirit. So um, meet with us, sustain us, feed us from your word. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. All right, what we have to do tonight is, is uh, 10, 19 to 13. I'm sorry, 10, 19 to 12, 13. So we got a lot of work to do. With, with verse 19, we uh, have come to the end of what I've called more, it's, it's kind of like Paul, you have the, the doctrinal section, you have the applicational section. Well, it's kind of what we have here, 1, 1, or 1, 5 to 10, 18 is the doctrinal section where he's arguing for the supremacy of Christ. He's now made his case, and he's turning in 10, 19 to exhortation, but he does it by way, so, so 19... 10, 19 through 25 is the introduction to the whole second part of the letter. Um, if it is a letter, it, it may well be a sermon um, that's been turned into a written tract or something. But um, <clears throat> uh, he, he starts by summarizing what he's been saying, and then he moves from that to summarizing his application. So let's look at it. Uh, you have in 19 to 21, two great truths. And in 22 to 25, three exhortations, um, the two great truths. I've, I've seen some information today that, that would change this slide. That's the bad thing about study. You, you get things prepared, and then your study leads you to different conclusions. Boldness to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, and great, a great priest over the high, high, house of God. So those are the true, two great truths. Uh, the high priesthood of Jesus covers everything but chapter, essentially chapters 9 and 10. The uh, entry into the holy place by the blood of Christ covers 9 and 10. Are you with me here? So we've summarized in these first two verse, three verses, the doctrinal content of the book. In 22 to 25, he'll make three exhortations. First, let's draw near. Second, let's hold fast. And third, let's consider how to stir one another up. So this is where we're headed. Uh, in fact, let's, I, I thought this was going on into um, that in detail, but it's not. So let's do it, 19 to 21. Having therefore, brothers, <clears throat> and the word, you have boldness almost certainly in your text. Confidence. Confidence. Um, this word probably is not, and certainly in chapter 11, is not... Um, let me look there just a minute. Um, this word is probably confidence, but it's it's a little stronger than that. It's something that's more um, it's less subjective. It's less a, a, something that we experience as something that's outside of us drawing us in. So we have the right, if you will, uh, having therefore the right. To enter into the uh, holy into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, so so we have the right, folks. I want you to remember what what the author has been saying in chapters nine and ten, that as long as the tabernacle stood, nobody had access to God, nobody had access to the holy of holies. You do. 
this is the, the beginning of a theme that Hebrews, I think, I, I think that's right to say, this is the beginning of a theme that Hebrews is going to, to play on. It's going to come in and out. It'll, it'll move in for a while. It'll move out for a while. But all the way to chapter 13, we'll be talking about this. And that is, um, you're going to misunderstand it when I first say it. The priesthood of believers, you think you know what I'm talking about. You don't. I am not a priest. You are not a priest. We are a priesthood. So I can't stand between you and God. But you minister to me the things of God. Um, Fascinating verse. Sometimes study it. Ephesians 4.16. Find out what the main subject of the verse is and the main verb is. And then think about, well, what does this mean about the church? Uh, I'll tell you now, you'll forget it. Okay, so tell you now. But the body causes its own growth by receiving resources from the head and passing them throughout the body by uh, the contact that every member has with every member. Uh, Just like the body, your body passes resources from the head, yes, by the fact that every member is in contact with it by way of all the intervening nerves and so forth that, that are between where your little toe and your brain. Yes? Um, so, so the body is a priesthood for any part of the body. But no part of the body is a priest. It's a corporate thing, not an individual thing. So if we're a priesthood, we ought to have access to the holy place. Yes? That's the amazing thing in Exodus 19. God invited Israel up on Mount Sinai. They didn't go. They wouldn't go. They were terrified of God. They thought certainly God's purpose was destructive for them. And so they wouldn't go. And, and yet, Mount Sinai was acting like a, a geographical temple. So if they're going to be, as he says in the opening verses of chapter 19, I will make you a kingdom of priests. And I've asked students for years, did Israel ever become a kingdom of priests? And, of course, the first question is, well, what does it mean to be a priest? And um, you mediate the things of God to man and the things of man to God. Did Israel ever function that way for the nations? And the answer surely is no. So the question is, why don't they become that? Because they never embraced their role as the priests. They didn't want to go into the holy place. Yes? Yeah, are you with me here? So you and I are a priestly people. As such, we have access. So verse 19, verse 20, which he inaugurated for us as a new and living way. And that word new means not only new in point of time, but new in point... I looked this up in one of the lexicons today, that word new. It's, a, it's an unusual word. It's not used very often in Scripture. <laughs> the first example, this was from classical Greek, the first example they gave was of a fresh corpse. I thought, can I, t- can I say that tonight? I did. But <laughs> what does it mean? It means that a corpse that has somehow been pro- pro- protected from decomposition. Are you with me? So it's fresh. And so it's something entirely new, something that's unlike anything else that's ever happened. 
We have a new and living way accomplished by his blood. Um, uh, he has inaugurated a new and living way through the tabernacle that is his flesh. So here is access to God. Second, the great priest and a great priest over the house of God. So if, if these things are true, if, if we have access to God and a great priest over the house of God, then what should that mean for us? Well, the three exhortations. First in verse 22. Let us draw near with a, a tr- you have a true heart, a genuine heart, sincere heart. What's a sincere heart? Well, it really means what it says. Amen. Amen. Uh, I looked this up, and, and that phrase as it stands only occurs once in the Bible. But there, are, there is a parallel phrase, this, this, um, this word true or sincere translates another word not not normally used for truth but whole and the one of the uh, dictionaries gave us the significance of this what i had thought for years i was glad to see an authoritative source helping me out a a true heart is one that has no divided loyalties you're wholehearted are you with me here yes no all right so Come, you, we, let's draw near with a whole heart um, in the full confidence of faith being sprinkled. What kind of people do you sprinkle uh, uh, their bodies with clean water? Yeah. Priests. The, the only people who were consistently sprinkled with clean water were priests. We're, we're a priestly people. We are fit to enter into the presence of God. Got a call from an alum of the seminary. Was it yesterday, Jan, when I spent nearly two hours on the phone? Can't can't remember. Oh, yeah, he, she, she was doing something else. Um, and he is just struggling in his faith. He's just really struggling. And um, he cannot believe that we are fit to be before God. Look, look at what the text says. We have our bodies sprinkled. What does that mean? It's done. Doesn't really need to be repeated. It's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a perfect tense, which is actually a... Uh, in, it still applies. It still applies. Yeah, still applies, and that's key. It, it has a, a primary sense of being... In the present, so so we stand sprinkled. Well, don't don't. Doesn't the author think that people have sin in their lives? Yeah, he does. But they're sprinkled. They're fit. The only kind of people God saves are wicked believers. <laughs> are you with me? God didn't save anybody else. And when He saves you, once you're saved, you're not different. What's different about you is the Holy Spirit. But in yourself, you're still a wicked believer. Are you with me here? So I never get over that. So I have my body sprinkled with, a clean, uh, with clean water. Verse 23, second exhortation. Let's hold fast the, con- the confession, secure un- unswervingly to the end. We, we might read that. 
Um, that's going to be the main point, in fact, the main application of the book. Hold fast the confession, unswervingly to the end, for the one who promised is faithful. And, verse 24, let's consider how to stir one another up. You have stir one. I got, I got King James in my mind. Said to motivate. To motivate. To stimulate. A spur is an even better word. A spur one another on to love and good works. Now, there are three exhortations. I grew up in a church in which there were four. The next, not forsaking the same. That's not an exhortation. That's, that is going to be part of what it means to hold fast to the confession. So what is this confession that we hold fast to? Yeah, well, Christ's person and work, yeah. Go back to verses 19 and 20. What are the two, two great facts? We have access to the holy place and? By the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus and? A great priest of the house of God. So that's our confession. Yeah, hold that fast, unswerving to the end. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but, but exhorting one another, and all the more, as you see the day approaching. Well, what is this talking about? Well, obviously, it's talking about going to church on Sunday. Amen? <laughs> Amen? Amen? Amen. Where has the book talked about going to church on Sunday anywhere? Where has it talked about exhorting one another? We've gone back to this verse on, on several occasions. Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Beware, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and withdrawing from the living God. I've asked you before, I'll ask you again. Who is this living God that we withdraw from? <coughs> Jesus. That's what the book's about. Yes? I can't go back to the God of Moses and abandon Jesus because the God of Moses is the God of Jesus. Yes? And if I abandon Jesus, I can't go to the God of Moses. He won't accept me because the God that exists exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. If I abandon the Son, I can't have access to the Father. Yes? But again... Look at verses 19 and 20. Where the, what are the two great facts? <laughs> access to the holy place and a great high priest. The access to the holy place is where God reveals himself most fully. Yes? Uh, that, but I have access to that by way of the blood that's ministered by the great high priest. And if I abandon the great high priest, I can't get to the holy place. I have no access to God. I'm actually worse off than the Old Testament saints were because the Old Testament saints at least had the tabernacle and temple. They at least had the priesthood and the offerings. I can't go back to that. And if we are right on the date of Hebrews that it's written sometime mid-60s of the first century, um, then it, may well, it, it will just be a very few years, maximum five before the temple is destroyed and the priesthood is essentially destroyed. <laughs> so the, the, uh, the point will become painfully 
true very soon that Old Testament people who have a, a an Old Testament approach to God can't get to God without Jesus. So if I give up on Jesus, I got no access. Are you with me here? All right. So verse 25 then uh, goes back to ver- chapter 3, 12 and 13. Beware, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in, in uh, uh, I'm sorry, evil heart in, of unbelief in withdrawing from the living God, but exhort one another, same word we have here in verse 25. How often? Daily. Daily. Um, so, so what does the author of Hebrews think about the way the church lives? Yeah, we're in contact with Christians. What, what did you say? Mine doesn't say daily. <laughs> what is it, in verse 13? In Hebrews 3, oh, 3, 13? Yeah. 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 yeah, Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. But exhort one another daily as long as the today is pronounced. Um, so, so I need daily exhortation to love and good works. Are you with me here? Three hours a week, folks, you want your children to learn to read and write and, and do um, math, yes? So we send them to, to school one hour a week with untrained teachers and expect them to be able to read and write and do math, correct? No. No? That's what my parents did. I only had to go to school one hour a week. <laughs> but we send our children to school, to Sunday school one hour a week, and we think that's going to be enough. And we go to church three hours a week at best, yes. And we think that's enough. How how much time is enough uh, with your children? Pardon. Yeah, but when do you, after they're grown, when do you get enough time with them? Never. Never. You could get too much time with them. Jerry Clower said, um, your kids are growing up and leaving home, but they're coming back and they're bringing more with them. next door neighbor has a daughter that goes to college in, in West Texas, way out West Texas someplace. And, and he said she announced, to, they, they got her an apartment there in the town. And uh, he said they, she announced to them uh, this week that she was not planning to move back home after she graduates. And her mother was just broken hearted and felt, felt slighted and rejected. And yeah, but you remember this, when you first got your taste of being on your own as much as you love your parents, yes, it just you can't. So, so how how much time is enough for families to be together? Well, really, none. No time is enough. As much time as you can get is what you want, isn't it? Yeah. All right. As long as it's not too much. <laughs> but, but at some point, it becomes too close. But, but, the, but if, if our children were all in the same town 
and we could see them at a moment's notice if we needed to, and we could, yes, wouldn't that be great? Um, we got it. Yeah, but the, the difference here is our brothers and sisters are in town, and we need to be seeking people out. This, is a, this book becomes an awfully important contribution to the New Testament concept of what the church is. The church is not an organization that meets at stated times. It's a family that lives together. Not necessarily in the same house, but they, it's the family that lives together. So, our, so I will never be enough until I have, made, until I have met the uh, people that God intends to use in my life to stir me up to love and good works. Um, so this is the introduction. Now, verse uh, 26 begins another warning section. And this is the, the, the warning sections are fairly mild at the beginning, but they become more and more severe as we go. And this is among the most severe. So he says, For if we sin willfully after having come to the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin, but a certain... Um, dreadful is a word that I settled on this afternoon. A certain dreadful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation that's about to devour those who are in opposition. That's terrifying. Terrifying is good. Um, anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on, on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe do you suppose his penalty will be, he shall be, how, how much more severe penalty do you suppose he shall be counted worthy, who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified an unholy thing, and has, um, I, I never can get this verb, insulted. insulted the spirit of promise. That's a critically important passage, because it sounds like for all the world, doesn't it? that enough sin might lead you to, uh, to trample underfoot Jesus and you would then lose your salvation. But let's go back to some basics. first basic that we have to go back to is what is salvation in Hebrews? When is salvation in Hebrews? Where? Coming up. When? When he returns, or when? Yeah, it's not even when he returns. Kingdom, yeah, um, new, heaven new heaven and new earth. Remember, the in the new covenant passage, chapter eight, the time when the full, the new covenant is fully in force is the time when there's no need for evangelism anymore. That's not the millennium. So, though I'm a premillennialist and a committed premillennialist, that's not when the new covenant is fully in force. It's not fully in force until the whole human race is experiencing the blessing of God. So that can't be before the new heavens and new earth. So if that's when salvation is, you can't lose what you, haven't, what you don't have. <laughs> yes? Yes or no? So if that's the case, then first of all, we can't be talking about losing salvation. Well, what are we talking about then? Well, we're talking about something that has to do with sanctification. Look there in verse 29. Um, he has counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified an unholy thing. Um, sanctified. 
doesn't that mean becoming more and more Christ-like? And the answer is, yeah, sometimes, not often, as a matter of fact. Most of the time in the Bible, it has a different sense. At one time, I could, I could name off five different senses for sanctification. One is you're sanctified by divine decree. Second, you're sanctified by, re, by being in relationship with holy people. Uh, third, I can't, I can't come up with them now. But, but, a, but, but uh, uh, one of them is becoming more and more like Christ. There are very few of those, though, remarkably enough. And when I remember that the book of Hebrews is so heavily dependent on the Old Testament, how many times has it referred to the Old Testament? We've lost count. I don't know how you'd even count them, frankly. Um, it would be interesting to go through and count the verses to see how many verses have references, either, either direct quotations or allusions to the Old Testament. It's a huge proportion of the book. Um, and throughout the Old Testament, I just copied off maybe 20 verses. It, the, the word to sanctify, as I recall, occurs 247 times in the Old Testament. 160 of them are in Leviticus, I'm sorry, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, Psalms, First Maccabees, <laughs> um, First Chronicles, um, Sirach, and I think that's it. 160, over 160 of them are in those seven books. Are you with me so far? And as far as I know, not one of them uses the word sanctify in the sense of making somebody more and more Christ-like. So I can't simply assume that if somebody is being sanctified that they have been born again. The text doesn't say that. And frankly, in this text... Look there again in verse uh, 29. What does the sanctifying? The blood. The blood. Have you ever been taught that a key sanctifying element in your Christian life is blood? Only the blood of Christ. Yeah. But have you ever been taught that, that physical blood no. will make you more and more like Jesus? No. no then this must be talking about something else. Well, what would it be talking about? Who is sanctified by blood? Priests. Priests. <laughs> go, back, go back to Leviticus 8 and 9, and go back, 8 and 9, yeah, 8, 8 and 9, and go back to Exodus 29 sometime, and look at the, the function of blood and water in the preparation, sanctification of a priest. Are the priests, by their sanctification in the Old Testament, inherently more obedient, law-abiding, uh, godly people? No. They're just set apart from the rest of the nation to do uh, work on behalf of the nation. Yes or no? Right. So all we're saying is these people are put in a new position, a new relationship, but it's not necessarily a saving relationship. It's important that you observe a couple of passages in the book of Hebrews on this score. Look at, um, yes, good, I have them marked. Hebrews 10.10. 10. 
by which will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We have been sanctified, yes? So we are now sanctified. And therefore, what's another synonym for sanctified? Like Christ. Or, no, not like Christ. (laughs) Well, yeah, or holy. Okay. Every priest was holy even when he was a wicked man. He was holy. Yes or no? All right, so. But how can we be holy unless we have a relationship with Christ? Well, well, I mean, I realize you're talking about Old Testament. Okay, we went to 1 Corinthians 7 some weeks ago. Turn to 1 Corinthians 7. Okay. So we see this. I'm sorry. I can remember all this. Yeah, it is hard, and it's so different. See why I said, folks, I can't really, I can't really do this in Sunday school because I need people who have, who've been hearing this along, and when, even even if you've forgotten it, then we can go back and say, oh yes, well I did hear that. Are, are you with me here? Even so hearing it, we still. Don't I know <laughs> it's it's such a strange idea. Um, I'll tell you shortly here. I want, I want to figure out where I want to start. Uh, verse thirteen. And if any um, wife, woman, has an unbelieving husband and he's pleased to dwell with her, let her not put away her husband. For the unbeliever, the unbelieving husband, is sanctified by, um, uh, by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by her husband. Since therefore your children would be unclean, but now are they holy? <laughs> I got. Are, are the children all, all born again? No. I don't know. The text doesn't tell me. I do know about the the spouse. And the spouse is holy, and unbelieving. Mm-hmm. So you have a relationship, huh? Just my relationship with the spouse. Yeah, you're in a you're in a setting where God is present. And present permanently, and so anyone in your in uh, who is living in that setting is set apart too. Do you follow this? Yeah. Right. So and I know you've said this I know, I know, but it's so new. I, I understand. I don't. I I don't have any problem with that. I explained a view that I had to Dr. Roger Clapp. Oh gosh, when was this? Sometime back, probably in the late '80s or early 90s, I spent a couple of hours explaining it to him, and he he said, later, he came back to me, and he asked me to explain it again. And later, he came back to me and asked me to explain it again. And later, he came back to me and asked me to explain it again. He said, Jim, every time I hear this view, I think this is the right view. But he said, I've been taught the other view so long, when I leave your office, I can't remember anything you said. I understand. It's not, um, this is not a problem with you. It's just a problem with we've been, we've been teaching our theology, not the Bible. It's ingrained. Yeah. Jim, I put down on a note here that holy, if this is correct, holy means set apart, not super good. Yeah, it means, uh, it means living in a relationship. There is a relationship with, with the Lord Jesus, but it's not necessarily a saving relationship. Jim? I'm going to ask, is it fair to say that Yeah, you're in. The, it's like Israel in the in the wilderness. Uh, 
Did I ask you about Caleb and Joshua at, at Kadesh Barnea? Uh, why didn't they go just leave? They got the promise. God's going to go with them. So why didn't they just leave and go in and take their land? They'd be outside the camp. They'd be outside the camp where the sanctifying presence of God is, and they can't go and take it until the sanctifying presence of God goes and gives it. Is it just the idea, same idea of churches that sprinkle babies, the idea that they're now in, not saved necessarily, yeah. but they're in the faith? Well, they're, they're, it depends on who you're talking to because some of them would say that you presume, if the, if the child gives no evidence to the contrary, you presume that they are born again the rest of their life. Um, so it depends on the group. But... Um, it, it may be a similar idea, but but it's it's not the same at all in another sense. Did I see a hand in the back? Okay, Teresa, I thought I saw your hand go. Sorry, I scratched my head. Okay, uh, yeah, don't scratch your head. Uh, um, so the two major issues that Hebrews ten uh, twenty six to thirty something. Um, I've moved the. Oh, I've gotten one of the references to sanctification. I've got to get the other one. Verse 10, we who are in the community are sanctified. Are we all born again? Which, which, which chapter? Hebrews 10, oh, 10 and verse 10. Okay. Apparently not. Apparently not. Well, do you assume, do you look out across the audience on Sunday mornings ever? Do you assume that everyone who is there... <coughs> Even everyone who's a member of the church who is there is born again. No. But they're in the community, and they're sanctified. They have been sanctified. I just never have heard that term applied I know. to the whole body. I know. But, but look, at, look at the problems we're facing if we, if we go another way. Then go down to verse uh, 14. For, for by one sacrifice he has perfected forever those who you have probably those who are sanctified that's a good translation it's perfectly adequate I want to put an emphasis on something that, that the, the form in Greek will allow and that is those who are being sanctified is that what you have okay I have it written in the because okay. you said it yeah. I'm earlier <laughs> um, I, can, I can be in a position of having been sanctified at some time and abandon it yes I could so violate my status as a priest, I could be removed from the priesthood, potentially. Would you grant that? Yes. And I wouldn't be sanctified anymore because I've begun to get involved with all kinds of unclean things, and you're thinking about uh, moral acts. I'm talking about ceremonial acts, touching dead bodies and eating pig. And Yes? Are you with me here? And I'd be disqualified. I was sanctified at one time. And, and when I was sanctified and operating as a priest, I remained in the sanctification. But I may leave it. Yes? By the same token, the unbelieving spouse may leave the believer. While the unbelieving spouse is remaining in the home, that spouse is sanctified. If he, if he leaves the believer, yes? What does it mean to leave the believer? Go to work? Leave forever, abandon, divorce. If the unbeliever divorces the believer, is the sanctification still at work? No. No. So the fact that 
ongoing salvation, uh, sanctification is happening doesn't mean that it will always be happening. Under what circumstance would I leave sanctification? Look, look at the language again of verse 26. I'm sorry, 29. Uh, he's counted the blood of the covenant by which he... What's the verb? Was sanctified. What's the difference between being sanctified and was sanctified? Not anymore. It's talking about a past event that, that no longer has any, any continuing results. So how do I, what do I do that would disqualify me from this sanctification? Well, let's go back to verse 26. It's sinning willfully. Well, what is this willful sin? Well, we had defined it in chapter 6. It's impossible for those who are once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, become part, uh, have become co-laborers with the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of, the God, of God and the powers of the age to, God, uh, to come, and have fallen away to renew them to repentance, seeing that they crucify afresh the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, we, we puzzled over and struggled over what does it mean to, to crucify afresh the Son of God. Well, it's going to be explained in this passage. Let's look at it. What is this? Judas was with Judas. and sanctified, but when he left, okay. Yeah, Judas is a, is a prime example of this. Um, he's a man who was once enlightened. Nobody heard, has ever since Judas, ever heard as pure a gospel as Judas heard because he heard it directly from the lips of Jesus. <laughs> yes? The bottom line is sanctified and saved are not, are not the same thing in the book of Hebrews and many other places for that matter. So what is this willful sinning? You know all the facts. You're not ignorant. You're not working on the basis of, of part of the information. You've got all the data. You know who Jesus is, what he claims to be and do. And in spite of all that, you've even seen his work through the Spirit. Yes? You've even been involved in ministry, perhaps. And I asked you, do you recall this when we were in Hebrews 6? Um, who, on, by what power did the Old Testament prophets prophesy? God's? Would you, would, can we be more specific? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. So if, if there's prophecy going on, it's the Holy Spirit at work. Would you grant that? Then on what basis, by what power, did Balaam's donkey prophesy? <laughs> the Holy Spirit. So Balaam's donkey was born again. <laughs> he was a sanctified donkey. <laughs> we got a whole lot of those around. We call them preachers. But, <laughs> but, but, but Balaam's donkey is a sanctified donkey that's not born again. Yes? Balaam prophesied. By what power? Holy Spirit. Wish I knew more about him. I don't know, I don't know what his final destiny is. I'm, just, I'm thinking of Nebuchadnezzar. He heard, yeah. he heard the words from Daniel. He heard the words from Abraham. Uh, 
he saw what the Lord had done, but yeah, he's he's in a not quite the same thing. Um, Daniel's not quite Jesus. So the uh, the sinning willfully is deliberately, knowledgeably abandoning everything that Jesus has claimed and has been claimed for Jesus in the, by the apostles. Isn't that what we call the unforgivable sin? No. The un- unforgivable sin is attributing the work of, of Jesus in the miracles to Satan. Okay. Um, so that's a different concept. So there, there, there is this willful sin, which is not setting a plan to go out and commit a sin and deliberately doing it. It is knowledgeably, with full understanding, determining in yourself that Jesus has no way to bring you to the kingdom. You can't get to the kingdom by Jesus. He is accursed, and the oxen at the altar are blessed by God. So let's look at it, verse 29. Um, How much more severe punishment do you suppose he shall be worthy who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Are you with me? This is not just um, making jokes about Jesus. This is is saying, no, all all the claims, this is Bart Ehrman, if you will, all the claims that Jesus has ever made, all the claims that the apostles made for Jesus are bunk. Not one of them is true. Jesus can't do anything for you. He's a dead Jew and still dead in, in Judea today. Second, he's counted the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. The, co- the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, an unholy thing. The blood of the covenant. Folks, when you um, kill an animal as an ancient Israelite, when you shed blood, you're out hunting and you catch, you, you get a stag and you kill it and bring it home for food. You must drain the blood out of the animal. And you must cover it with dirt. No, no blood must be left exposed to the, to the sky. It's a symbol that uh, blood has been shed in, improperly and God is going to bring judgment of that improper shedding of blood. Are you with me here? You remember uh, uh, Cain and Abel. The blood of your brother is calling out to me from the earth. Um, but, but having covered it with, with dirt, would you feel free to walk on it? Cover the blood or cover the If animal? you covered the blood with dirt, would you feel free to walk across that? Sure. That's what we're saying about Jesus' blood. It's, it's more worthy of being trampled underfoot than it is to be conceived as anything that can aid me in any way spiritually. And he has insulted the Holy Spirit of promise. So what is this, what is this sacrifice? What is this willful sin? There's a, one more phrase I want you to see in this verse. Um, actually, it's in verse 26. I want you to see this phrase, and I want to know, does this sound familiar? If we sin willfully after coming to the knowledge, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. Does that sound familiar? Can you think where else you might have read it? 
How about verse 18? Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no more sacrifice for sin. So, if Jesus sacrifice is greater than the oxen and the and the goats and the rams and the ewes and the lambs if jesus sacrifice is greater than all those sacrifices put together then there can be no more sacrifice for sin but if i reject jesus sacrifice there remains no more sacrifice for sin i think that finally seals this has to be the interpretation it's not well, you know, when I was a kid, I saw some toys in a toy store, and I, I plotted, figured out how I could go in and, and shoplift those toys and get out the door with them. And I did it. Willfully. I have sinned willfully. I, I can't be saved. I've sinned willfully. That's not the point. Nothing in this book is about ethics and morality. Everything in this book is about the... Price the the value you put on the on the name of Jesus, yes, and once more let's go back to what I consider perhaps the summary application of the book, verse twenty three. Let us hold fast uh, our confession, unswerving to the end, for the one who who promised is faithful. So the the great issue of the book is can't give up on Jesus. If you get into the midst of trouble, think, think about people you know who have, who have went, left the church and they have no use for Christianity anymore. What often has happened in their lives? What are the things that happen in such lives? Some kind of tragedy. Some kind of tragedy. Well, I prayed and God didn't even hear. My mother died. My father died. My child died. And those are tragedies, folks, especially the child dying. Yes? That's horrid. But what have we learned about suffering in, the, in, in this book? And in, and in Romans, for that matter. It's part of the Christian walk. To what end? To make us like Jesus. To make us like Jesus. Ah, sanctification. <laughs> okay, now we've got some sanctification going. That means, friends, that God is going to take you into times. We haven't taught people this. My mother grew up in a good Bible-teaching church, but they left her with the message. If you do everything right, nothing bad will ever happen to you. And then bad things started coming right and left, just knocking her down. And they'd say, come to her and say, Juanita, just trust God. And she said, I don't know. How, I can't. I don't know who he is. Everything I've ever thought about God turns out to be wrong. I don't, know who, I don't know who this is that I'm in relationship with. And she had to spend 40 years of her life learning about God again because the church never taught about suffering as being a key part of the Christian life. And the suffering is there. The, the nature of the suffering is not a little pinprick. The nature of the suffering is for all obvious bases. If, if you think about the suffering, when you get into it and you look around, you, you look around and you say, I can't see God anywhere in this. But you trust him anyway. 
That's the kind of suffering we're talking about. I sat in my parents' front room. I think I've told you this. I'm sorry to repeat. In 1968, uh, Jan's dad had come down to college and picked me up and brought me home. I said, what, what's going on? He said, I'll tell you in the car. He's, uh, he said, your mom needs you, though. Pack your bag. you got to come home. And it turned out <clears throat> that my dad was in jail. Um, and I sat in that front room thinking, I know all things are supposed to work together for good to those who love God, but I can't see how any good's ever going to come out of this. When he died 17 years later, Jan said, what's wrong, Jim? You're not grieving. Why aren't you grieving? I said, I've been grieving for 17 years. My grief is over. Am I making any sense to you at all? The, The point is, folks, that when there's no obvious reason to trust, that's when faith shows itself. And if there's no, no obvious reason to trust and you abandon, then you never had faith anyway. Or you haven't been taught and you're just awfully immature and there's still hope. Are you with me? Uh, so the issue here in this, in this warning passage is um, verse 23. I'm sorry, verse 20. Three, yes. Let's, let, let's hold fast to our confession, unswerving to the end. For all things, I'm sorry, for the one who promised is faithful. Um, and then the stirring each other up to good, love and good works, spurring each other to love. I'm going to have to hold on to that, <laughs> Jerry. <laughs> um, is, um, is then going to be in that, con- in that, in that context. Yeah, I know things are hard, but remember how great Jesus is. Hold fast. Don't, get, don't give up on Jesus. There's no reason to give up on Jesus. Think about and, and, and rehearse with them the greatness of the work, the greatness of the person, the greatness of the offices of Jesus. And you lay that out for them. Now, there's a reason for all this. Um, at school, there are people who say the, the more severe punishment is loss of reward. That's not more severe than, than death without mercy. Are you with me? Something else is going on. So why, if if all that's in view is death, if all that's in view is loss of reward, then why does he add verses thirty and thirty-one? For we know him who said, "Vengeance is mine; I will repay." Is that how God deals with His people? And again, the Lord will judge His people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And by the way, folks, therefore, that verse 31 is not about lost people. It's about people who identify with Jesus. We're, we're involved with a person who doesn't play around. He's very serious. Are you with me here? He's very loving, but he's exceedingly serious. He will not tolerate um, dallying with the work of Christ and the person of Christ. Kay, looks like you want to say something. Yeah, this is exactly what Jesus said about the uh, uh, priest when he was, you know, uh, talking about them. He said, they will, you know, woe to you, you will have a, a more severe punishment mm-hmm. yeah. because you know better. That's right. Now he's going to explain how this all works out. <clears throat> 
verses 32 to 39. So let me move on here. In verses 32 to 39, remember the former days in which once you were enlightened, you endured a great affliction of sufferings. Um, in part, uh, re, re, um, reproaches and afflictions being made a being made a spectacle of, and in part, sharing with those who were experiencing such things. What does it mean to share with them, folks? Matthew twenty six. Um, uh, I was in prison, and you visited me. Inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these my brothers, you've done it unto me. What is that talking about then? It's not talking about prison ministry. Rapists and murderers are not Jesus' brothers. Jesus' brothers in the passage probably are Israel being afflicted during the time of the Great Tribulation. And the Gentiles go identify with them in prison. Does this make any sense to you? What would it mean for a Gentile to go, well, what did it mean in World War II for a Gentile to identify with Jews? You know because you know the story of Corrie ten Boom and many others. Right? Same issue here. These people identified with the folks who were suffering, even if they weren't themselves suffering the loss of their homes. Uh, look, verse 34, he continues, uh, for you even suffered in bonds and the seizure of your belongings with joy. Um, uh, receiving it with joy, knowing that you yourselves have a greater... Uh, 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 possession, good, and, and an abiding possession. What is this greater abiding possession? Yeah, and we're on the way to the kingdom, huh? and we're on the way to the kingdom. What was, what was it that Jim Elliott said? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to get what he cannot lose. Is, uh, that's close. It's yeah, not. Yeah. That's, that's what we're talking about. You know, I'm, I'm still back at verses 30 and, and 31. Yeah. Uh, I still don't get what you... Uh, who are the people that will judge? The Lord will judge His own people. Yeah, He's not speaking of Israel. He's talking about Israel. Okay, okay. it's, it's an old it, it's an Old Testament quotation. Okay, very, but, very good. But but here here are these folks who like Israel. You've got the camp of Israel in the wilderness, like the camp of the church. In the camp in the wilderness, there are both believers and non-believers. Yes, in the camp of the church, there are both believers and non-believers. Not in the true church. Um, but in, in the organization that the church is. Um, those people are going to be under a worse judgment. Those, those who are in the, in the sanctifying presence of Christ, who never come to know him and finally abandon him under, under persecution, they're going to be under a worse judgment than, than any lost person who's living as a lost person. Verse uh, 35, do not cast away your boldness, which has great reward, you have, and here is the next, probably the next most important verse after verse 23 in chapter 10, for you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you, can, you will receive the promise. For yet, it's only a little while, 
the one who is coming, will come, and he will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. If he draws back, my, my soul will take no pleasure in him. Um, we are not of those who draw back to destruction, uh, but of faith to the possession of our souls. So I think I've got a good interpretation. It, it allows verses 26 to 31 to fit well into its context, not only the context of, of uh, chapter 10, but also the, the whole book. I think it works. The issue here is not loss of salvation. Nobody has it. It's the kingdom. Uh, sanctification is not a course in spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Sanctification is being in a relationship where the living God is present. Perhaps not present in you, but present. In other words, you're not one of the masses who've never heard. Yeah. And furthermore, you may have even become a leader like Judas. And like Judas, you may have walked away and considered Jesus accursed. Now, verses 35 to 39 are introducing, in fact, verses 32 to 39 are introducing Hebrews 11. Um, so, verse 1035, don't throw away your confidence. 1036, you have need of endurance to receive what was promised. 1039, you need to persevere in faith. And then the paragraph introduces chapter 11, which is our faith chapter of the Bible, but this is not a definition of faith. It's a, it's a reference to specific aspect of faith, specifically explained in verse 1. Faith is um, the King James says substance of things hoped for. Yeah. The assurance of things hoped for? Yeah. Okay. Um, this, this is another word that has it's, it's not a reference to how I feel about the ideas. It's a reference to the ideas in themselves without reference to how anybody else thinks about them. This word denoted tangible reality in contrast to mere appearance. Uh, it's the objective character of the word. Chrysostom, an early Christian preacher, um, interprets the, the um, certainty of things hoped for showing that it is the task of faith to make unseen reality as real as that which is seen with the human eye. People who live by faith live in light of realities that mere worldlings cannot perceive and cannot understand. You make, different, you make your decisions on, ba on different bases than they do. Uh, so my, doc, my friend, Dr. Clapp, he, he loved golf and he loved the stock market. <laughs> Is that that's not an overstatement, is it? <laughs> and he uh, he said, I will get out on the golf course in a foursome, uh, maybe three guys I don't know, and they're talking. And said, invariably on a golf course, things turn around to the to the stock market. And he said, I'll let them talk a while, and he'll say, he says, I'll say, uh, what investment do you have that'll be worth anything in 500 years? And they all look at him kind of cross-eyed, like. That's an absolutely stupid question. Why would I care in the first place? In the second place, no investment will be worth anything in 500 years. And he said, what if I could tell you about an investment, which if you, if you would make it today, 
would not only be worth as much in 500 years as it is today, it'll be worth infinitely more. And that's his segue into the gospel. Are, are you with me here? Um, mere worldlings never understand why we look at death the way we look at it. They will never understand why we suffer and still trust the Lord. Are you with me? Uh, was it? Oh, golly, who was that? Papias? Um, that doesn't sound right. He was be, he was a he was a a disciple of John, who who John the apostle, and, and uh, he was being carried off to at at eighty, as I recall the story, he was being carried off to martyrdom, and they said if you'll just renounce Jesus, we you, you won't have to die, and he said I've served Jesus all these years. I wish I could remember who it was. Papias isn't right. Can you? No, that he was up in in Byzantium. This is in Western Turkey. Um, he said, "I've I've served Jesus all these years, and he's never done me any wrong. How can I renounce him now?" No worldling will ever understand that. Um, no worldling will will really understand Hebrews eleven. Now, Hebrews eleven is not about what faith is. It's about one specific aspect of what faith is. It is hope in the face of futility. You persevere in hope in the face of futility. So faith uh, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Um, for by it, the elders received a good reputation. Uh, by faith, verse 3, we understand that the worlds were made by the word of God so that what is seen came out of what didn't appear. Uh, I heard a, a, a discussion, a hist I'm, I'm not even through Hebrews 11, it's already 730. Um, I heard a discussion with a historian, a, a professional historian. This has been years ago. We were living in Memphis at the time. And they were talking about uh, whether you could, you could do uh, history with using the Bible at all. And he said, well, in a way, but he said, once you bring God into it, I'm not dealing in history anymore. Because the definition of his, history as a science, history as a discipline, is that you're, you're looking for the course of cause and effect back through time. And when that cause and effect has to be something that's observable, and understandable in human experience. And it's in the past. Well, yeah, it's in the past, but it, it, but but the, the event, you have to have similar events happening today. And if there aren't similar events happening today, you can't you can't talk about it. Miracle cannot be historical according to the present definition of history. Are you with me here? Um, Hebrews he, Hebrews is giving us a concept of faith that looks at things so fundamentally differently that only one enabled by the Spirit can live what I call eschatologically. You live in light of a future that God's Word has defined, but there is no historical way to get there. There are no 
paths, given what we know in history, sociology, psychology, not given what we know in biology and, and geology, there are no paths to that future. So it can't happen. It's impossible. It's nonsense. It's nonsense that God should become man. It's, it's not history. It's unhistorical. They're, in, they're not saying, they don't realize this, they're not saying it didn't happen. They're just saying we can't talk about it in history because that's not what we talk about. Are you with me here? They don't understand that, but they, they think they're saying a whole lot more. So what we're looking at in Hebrews is this kind of thing. You can read the book or, or the chapter. I want to turn to one portion of the chapter that, uh, that is going to be important for understanding what I'm talking about. You have Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah. Um, and then you have a break in the passage, verses 13 to 16. These all died in faith without receiving the promises. They were given promises, but they never experienced the fulfillment of them. They lived as strangers and exiles in the earth, seeking a better homeland, a heavenly one. Um, but isn't that pie in the sky by and by when you die? Yeah. It's exactly what it is. And if you're not interested in that, you're not interested in Jesus. <laughs> but the passage I want to get to is Moses in verses 23 to 30. So let's turn down there. By faith, Moses, when he, came, when he grew up, when he was born, was hidden for a three-month period by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the command of the king. By faith, Moses, when he came to adulthood, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, uh, choosing instead to suffer affliction with the people of God than to have uh, the pleasure of sin for uh, a, a, a moment. Considering the, the reproach of Messiah, greater wealth, greater treasure than the wealth of Egypt. By faith, he left Egypt. Now, we're talking about the second time, not the first. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the decree of the king uh, or the wrath of the king. For, and here's the verse that I want to get to. For, he endured as seeing what? Him who is unseen. What kind of sense does that make to anybody, frankly? Unfortunately, we've left... The modern church has left the, the, the Christians in it with the idea that everything has to be better for us than it was for the last generation. We have to have comfort. We have to have ease. We have to have peace. We have to have plenty. Or there's something wrong in our relationship with God. That's not what's here. That's living by what you see. It's not living by what you hope for. It's not living in hope. If I have all my hopes fulfilled in this world, there's nothing to hope for in the next. So, what does it mean to endure as seeing him who is unseen? Well, he, he, he made his decisions not the way even Israel made decisions. <laughs> uh, isn't this what we told you back in Egypt? Leave us alone. Don't take us out into the desert to die. 
Because if God leads you where there's no water, he must intend you to die there. <laughs> if he leads you where there's no food, he must int intend you to starve to death there. If he leads you to where <coughs> there are enemies, he must intend you to die in battle. Yes? And if you can't figure out any other way to live, when Moses is up on the mountain, he's been up there 40 days, and we don't know where he is, don't know whether he is ever coming back. They figured the great fire on the mountain was going to destroy them, and Moses has been up there 40 days. So they figured the very best thing to do, the most meaningful, logical, reasonable thing to do was to make a golden calf and go back to Egypt. After having seen the plagues, after having seen the parting of the Red Sea, having walked across it on dry land, they thought the best plan was to go make a golden calf and go back to Egypt. That's reasoning as a worldling. We're talking about eschatological reasoning. If God has led you into the desert, he's not led you into the desert to die. He doesn't give up his people cheap, uh, cheaply. That verse that we quote at, 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 at uh, funerals, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of all the saints, is, is improperly used there. It's, a, it's, in a, it's in a psalm that's thanking God for deliverance from death. It's not about how you get through the death of a loved one. It's how you, how you celebrate when God has delivered you from death. Go read it, Psalm 118. So you can see this. The, the point is, though, that God doesn't give his people up cheaply. So normally speaking, if he leads us into hardship, then I can be confident that at some point he's going to, make the, he's going to supply what's needed to get through that hardship. It may be years. <laughs> it may mean a lot of suffering. You got all, all quiet here all of a sudden. But God is going to supply. He's going to take us to the point where we realize we have no resources left, nothing to turn to but God, and then he will step in after the last moment in our minds and supply. This is what Hebrews 11 is about, and it's what Hebrews is about. Remember we got into this passage, verse 32 of chapter 10, by remembering a time of, of persecution in the past. Yes? What does that probably imply for these people who are receiving the book the first time? If they've had persecution in the past, you're going to have some more. And once you know what it's like, it's harder to go back into it. Yes? So the book is written to tell us, no, you go back into it, because that's where you're going to learn the greatness of God. Um... He, he brings this whole portion of the book to a close, of, of the chapter, to a close in verses 32 and following. Uh, there are two groups here in 32 to, and, and following. There are people who enjoyed the promises, deliverance and, and victory and power and strength, yes? But then there are people who endured suffering to get the promises. In the Bible, the first is the, greater, is the larger group. In, the, in church history, 
The second is the larger group. Uh, more martyrs, more persecuted people, they say, in the 20th century than in all the previous centuries together. I, that's what I've been told by missiologists. I don't know whether that's true or not. I don't know. I don't know how you'd figure it out. But if that's the case, then we are living in a day. We, we miss it because we live so so comfortably, and the only news that's important is what happened between the East Coast and the West Coast. Yes, I was stunned when I got to India the first time and. There were no articles on the front page about the United States. <laughs> Just, <laughs> how can this be? There are a billion people who don't care about 300 million. So. <laughs> uh, um, but of critical importance in this section is that all were approved by faith. Look at verse 39. All of these people were approved by faith, but they will not experience perfection without us. Verse 39, I struggled, in fact, verse 40, I struggled with for a long time on uh, uh, thinking, trying to figure out what Hebrews was doing till I realized that most of our Bibles have mistranslated verse 40. Greek is the most precise language ever in the history of the world. That's why the New Testament was inspired in Greek. But one of the grammars I used to use for teaching Greek gave at least five different interpretations for any, for any aorist tense verb. At least five. So I have here an aorist tense verb. God having provided, I'm sorry, uh, it's in verse 39. These all, though they received approval because of their faith, our Bibles tend to read, have not received the promises, or did not receive, did not receive. What's the difference between did not and have not? This one says none of them received all the God promises. Yeah, that's not what the text says. Did not's totally in the past and have not. Well, you're still around. That's right. Possibility remains. Uh-huh. They, they still haven't gotten the promises. Our translations often read have not. It should be did not. I'm sorry. They, they read did not and should read have not. Because I, I read salvation as new birth and justification. I read sanctification as becoming more and more like Christ. So Abraham dies, he goes to heaven. Yes? What, what could be better than going to heaven? But Hebrews is telling us, no, Abraham, we're not talking about Abraham's new birth. We're not talking about Abraham's um, becoming godly. We're talking about getting into the kingdom. Abraham isn't in the kingdom. The heaven is not king. Heaven is not kingdom. Um, that awaits us. You haven't received the promises. Abraham hasn't received them. He's not going to get them before you do. We all get them at the same time. Yeah. So I had to rethink my concept of salvation and sanctification in order to make it work with what's going on in this passage. If Abraham has it, then this verse is wrong. If Abraham doesn't have it, then he's not talking about new birth, sanctification, and going to heaven. He's talking about the coming of the kingdom, the world which is coming about which we are speaking, he said in 2.5. Right? So 
um, chapter 12, the witnesses, now my pastor when I was a boy said, we're surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses. He, says, like, and he was an athlete in his school days. He said, it's like having a great stadium filled with all the Old Testament saints and they're watching us. And they're wanting to see how we're going to perform on the field. They did their time on the, in the game. We're in the game now. And they want to watch us to see. That's not what a witness is in the scripture. A witness is, a, is somebody who speaks. So what are they speaking? Well, they're speaking chapter 11. They're speaking of the importance, the nature of faith as being persevering faith. They're speaking of the importance of clinging to Jesus, no matter the cost, Hold fast your confession, unswerving, for the one who promised is faithful. Yes? They did that. They've given their testimony. The testimony is written down in Scripture. And we're to follow in their footsteps and live as aliens and sojourners in the earth, not at home, not at ease. Uh, somebody put on, the, uh, on Facebook this week a statement about um, the hope of Christians and the problem of being black in modern America. You said you're always at home and never at home. And uh, I thought, well, that's essentially what we ought to be, what Hebrews is calling us to be. We're always aliens and sojourners. So this world kind of is my home, but it's not my home. And I ought to always feel a stranger and an, and an outcast in this world, that things are, are not comfortable here. This is not the place I'm intended to be. When I'm in India, when I'm in Poland, when I'm in other countries other than Australia, I felt pretty at home in Australia by and large. But when I was in the, when I've been in these other countries, I feel a bit off balance every time, all the time I'm there. Things aren't just quite right. I, I, I'm, I can read a number of languages and I'm illiterate. <laughs> I want to be able to read. I can't read in these countries. So what's going on? I'm an alien and a sojourner and things. I'm at home, but never really at home. I belong, but I never really belong. That's what it means to be a person of faith and to, and to cling to Jesus no matter the cost. So chapter 12, verse 1. Jim, real quickly, can yeah. you address uh, in 35 the better resurrection? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I, I think the point there is escaping death. They, they, they could deny Jesus and escape death, but they're going to hold on to Jesus and escape death. It's a much better resurrection. <laughs> so chapter 12, uh, 1, the witnesses call us to persevere in faith at any cost. We will run with patience as we keep our eyes on Christ, following his example. Now, I am free of this. I'm with uh, John um, Bomar who said, when I see runners smiling, I will start running. So, never seen a smiling runner. So I'm pretty safe. Uh, but I'm told by people who are runners that especially in a long race, you set your mind on the finish line, even when you can't see it. You set your mind on the finish line, and you don't quit until you've crossed the finish line. Well, the finish line for us is Jesus, who has gone into the heavens and sat down at the right hand of God. Yes? And so we keep our eyes on him. So verses 2 and 3, uh, following his example, he endured in light of the promises. Look at that. Verse uh, 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 3. 
Consider him who endured such a, a opposition from sinners against himself so that you won't lose heart and grow weak in your souls. Right? That, that wasn't as good a verse as I wanted. Verse 2, looking away to Jesus, uh, to the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. He's already lived the life that he wants us to live. Folks, this is the amazing thing. Jesus came to live the kind of life that he wants his people to live. He didn't live by his own power. He, ref he refused to use his own power in his incarnation. He used only the Holy Spirit. That's why, Linda, the, the uh, unpardonable sin is, is attributing the power that's behind Jesus to Satan. Uh, remember what Nicodemus said. We know that you, we, Pharisees, know that you're a teacher sent from God. No one could do the signs that you're doing if God were not with him. To say that that's Satan is an unpardonable sin. Um, so here, he endured in light of the promises. Yeah, but he knew what the promises meant. Yeah, but so you're learning. Yes? He has sat down at the Father's right hand. Then I, there is a real man sitting at the right hand of God. <laughs> we had an awful time with this in India. They couldn't believe this. Jesus was, was swallowed back up into the hole of God and lost his individuality. Uh, even Christians believe, have, have infection from Buddhism and, and um, Hinduism in their theology in India. Uh, and we are encouraged by him not to lose heart. If he can make it, you have the same resource he had to make it, namely the Holy Spirit. Then we move into this Christian discipline passage. We've talked about this on several occasions, so I'll just summarize it. Do you notice that Jesus, chapter 5, Jesus learned obedience how? By the things he suffered. That's interesting. Was he bad? Why is it he had to learn obedience? Because he's a human, and he's living as a true human. Are you with me here? And as a true human, he, he, there are things he can't do. Uh, he, he can't know the day of his, of his return. As a human, as God, he knows it, but the human mind is not infinite and can only know what's revealed to it. Yes or no? Then he lived... The same way you're not, you and I are going to have to live, namely, we're going to learn suffer, we're going to learn obedience through the things that we suffer. Um, so the, the the father gives encouragement. So look at verse four. You've not yet struggled in your contest against sin to the point of shedding blood, and you are you are um, ignoring the encouragement which is addressed to you as sons, my son. Do not despise the discipline of the Lord or lose heart when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. You have scourges is, is perhaps giving the context a, a little too strong, but not too, not too far is it too strong because the suffering could be pretty profound. Jesus' suffering was, was profound. Think about it, folks. You'll never suffer what Jesus suffered. You'll never suffer God, God abandonment. 
Yes. So if he can survive by the power of the Spirit, you can survive by the power of the Spirit. Uh, so he disciplines those whom he loves. And I want you to notice there in verse 6 that the first verb in the verse, I don't know how your text reads, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. Four verbs, and in the order I've just read them as they appear here, uh, the first and fourth are loving acceptance. The middle two are God disciplining us to produce in us the likeness of Christ. Are you with me here? The loving acceptance of God surrounds all his discipline of us. Now the question then is then, why does he discipline us? And the answer is, it's a sign of sonship. If you're a son, you get disciplined. Yes? Ladies, the author here is not omitting you. You also are sons. You have this high status, the same status Jesus has in that regard. The, the issue for us is to understand that fathers always discipline immature children. Yes? And we know that without discipline, the child isn't going to grow up. Don't we? We've seen that on so many occasions. You've watched other, other families where children weren't disciplined. Am I right? You, you, you knew when you were watching it what was going to happen, and, and, and unfortunately it came out just like it, it was expected. There's a, there's a distant, uh, there's, a, there's a couple that we know. Uh, they're kind of generally in our family, but we know them. And uh, they didn't. They adopted two boys, and they never disciplined them. One of them ended up in prison, and he's still in prison. What would you rather have? No discipline, or discipline from the Lord? And he goes on. Uh, the value of discipline, of bearing discipline, verse nine. From it we live. <laughs> verse ten. From it, we come to share in his holiness. Verse 11, from it, we bear, we bear the peaceable fruit of righteousness as we're exercised by it. So, verses 12 and 13, don't lose heart. In fact, the discipline of the Lord uh, is a good indication that you're his child, that you belong to him. Yes? Jim? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And when we don't understand these things, when nobody teaches these, and the discipline of the Lord comes into our lives, we don't know what to do with it. We don't know what's happening. We feel that the Lord is angry at us and has turned on us, has abandoned us. If anybody was ever abandoned, it was Jesus. He didn't give up on that. So, that, so it's going to be in chapter 13 where we have the promise re, 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 reiterated, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When I can't find him, he's still there. And I cry out to him and, and, and lay out all my anger, all my bitterness, all my pain, and it's okay because he understands. He knows what it's costing me to go through the suffering. Are you with me? 
at all? Do you know this? I think it's in Isaiah 63, and I think it's verse 5. Talking about the, the wilderness generation, God, Isaiah says, In all their afflictions, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence guided them. I hold on to that verse. I need that verse. Remarkably enough, we've made it through what I plan to do tonight. Yes? Are all of our sufferings discipline? Well, what are we reading in Romans 8? I, let, me, let, me talk about, let me talk about that just a minute here, if, if you don't mind. I've got a couple of minutes. Um, there are two kinds of, of ways of talking about discipline. One is punitive, and the other is remedial. You know this, yes? Mother, oh, she, boy, she was brutal. You need to pray for me because I'm, I'm so abused as a child. I grew up as an abused child. I had to make my bed every day. Take out the trash. Take out the trash every day. How trashy can two adults and one child be? But every day I had to take out the trash. I had to dry the dishes every day. In the summers I had to mow the lawn. And on Saturdays I had to dust the house, dust my room at least. Isn't that terrible? Don't you weep for me? Yes, <laughs> in the army, there was a certain way I had to make my bed, and it had to be made that way, or I got in trouble. Um, what does making a bed have to do with being a soldier? Everything, because you got to be able to, you got to learn to take orders and take them as they're given and carry carry them out as the, as instructed. I finally realized at some point in basic training. If I learn to take the orders immediately and as given, I might survive in battle if I have to go to Vietnam. <laughs> it's just possible if they say, incoming, if my resp- first response is to jump to, the f- t- jump to the ground, I might survive. Yes or no? Because I've learned to take orders. When my son was uh, in our Army uh, Air Force ROTC, uh, I said, Jim, you're going to have to... It, it, they don't allow much discretion to for second lieutenants. They don't want you to be an independent thinker. They want you to be able to take orders. If you can't take orders, you can't give them. <laughs> Am I making sense to you? So some discipline is um, disciplinary in the sense that it's dealing with something wrong in my person some wrong thing that I've done, and God in his discipline, lovingly, I'm discovering, lovingly applies the discipline. He does not despise us, nor does he, nor does, does he look down on us. He in, in no way is angry at us. He knows our, our maturity, and he understands why we respond the way we do. But most discipline is like making the bed and taking out the trash and Yes, it's forming habits of response that are going to make you mature over time. Am I making sense to you? Kind of to deal with. Uh-huh. So all of, his, all of his discipline is remedial. Some of it is uh, dealing with specific acts of disobedience in the past. 
not all of it. If, as with your children, if he disciplined us for everything we did wrong, we would lose our minds. So there, are, he, he, like any wise parent, he picks his battles. And so here, um, uh, I, the, the, by the way, this passage is very difficult for some people because they had abusive parents. I had an abusive parent, but, but not in this sense. <laughs> uh, so I have to be careful on how I, I talk about this passage. But if you had an abusive parent then come here and look, learn what a real parent is like and learn to respond to God because he's dealing with you as a father who loves his children. He's doing this for your good. Folks, do you not, most of you, do you not look back at your, at your childhood and you think, I'm so thankful for my parents' discipline in my life? And I think I even wish that my mother had been more... more uh, consistent at it. There are things in my, my character that it, it, it would have taken an outside will to work on. Yes or no? You know what I'm talking about? That I wish she had been able to, to deal with, but she was dealing with her own demons at the time. Um, the, the reality is, if I can look at it that way with my own human parents, what will it be like to stand before the Lord and look back over his discipline in our lives? Will we not be incredibly, infinitely, everlastingly thankful for it? Then what if we began to treat it that way now instead of the horrible experience I have to go through? This is another opportunity for me to see the greatness of God in time, to see his provision to see his love and care in the midst of suffering. And then I can hold fast the confession unswerving for the one who promised is faithful. Let's close with prayer. <clears throat> Father, this is a huge chunk of scripture. We've dealt with a lot of different ideas today, and indeed all through this study so far we've dealt with an awful lot of unusual ideas, and they're so strange. Father, it's hard for us to hold them in our minds. Um, but would you not minister to us to seal your word in our souls when, even when we can't get all the definitions out, when we forget why we said one thing was true and another wasn't, the truth of your word is working in us, clean, cleaning us up, strengthening us, preparing us for the plan that you have for us, not only in this world, but in eternity. Give us hope, Father. Always give us hope so that we can endure all the things that we must do in order to achieve that great destiny that you have set for us. Thank you that you have made us your sons. Now, teach us to live like sons for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.